Let me, let me just start by doing this. How, how, many, have you, how many have you of you have ever run in a race? Anybody ever run in a race before? Uh, anybody here ever run in a long distance race? No long distance race? Well, everybody's sane. That's why. Because nobody's done it. Uh, but uh, uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever started a race that was a little bit longer, or, you know, you just picture in your mind somebody that, that maybe they start out really fast on a long distance endurance race. And, and so they start, they sprint out there and then they realize, boy, I just got to catch my breath now. Well, that, that's a little bit like what's happened here in the book of Acts because the first two chapters have been just pedal to the metal. You know, I mean, you, you start off with Jesus speaking to the disciples and then ascending into heaven and, and then the, the disciples picking Matthias for the, to take uh, Judas's place. And then you have the day of Pentecost and the and the, the, the sound of the, like a mighty rushing wind, and you've got the flames of fire, and the sights and sounds, and all of the, the, the giving of the Spirit, and then Peter gets up and he preaches, and, uh, and 3,000 people get saved, and, and, and what happens here, it's almost like Luke pauses for a minute to, to catch his breath and say, okay, now, let me tell you about what it's like around here. He sort of pauses to look around and say, okay, this is... This is all that's happened. Now let me tell you what it looks like. And that's really what it looks like here, what we're going to be reading about tonight. And in, in Acts 41 through 47, we really see what the early church looked like. And we find a picture of what a healthy church should look like today. So we're going to pick it up in verse 41. It says this. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possession and possessions and goods they gave to anyone as, as, as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And as we read this, we see some characteristics of that first church, that early church. And the first thing that I want to talk about, and we're going to take most of our time on this, is, is we see that they're living out the five-fold purpose of the church. Excuse me just a second. <coughs> Got a tickle in my throat right there. I ate some peanuts. <laughs> I got to get rid of that tickle. Anyway, they were uh, they were living out the five fivefold purpose of the church, and I want to I want to walk through these and talk about them because this is really a picture of who we want to be as a church, what we believe God has called us to be, and we're going to use some words that to, to to tie them in that you'll be hearing more and more as as time goes on. But the first one has to do with fellowship with God and fellowship with his people. And, and it's the word connect, which is where verse 42, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. In verse 44, all the believers were together. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes. And, and the idea of connecting focuses on the vertical and the horizontal relationships in life. How many of you know that there's relationships go two ways. You've got vertical relationship, the relationship with, with God, and then you've got horizontal relationships. That's the relationship with people, which by the way, 
you, you can't be right with either one of them if you're wrong with either one of them. If you're, that's why Jesus said, listen, if you got ought against your brother, you go make that right before you come to me. And, and so you can't be right with God if you're wrong with people. And you can't be wrong with God and right with people. It, it's, 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 it's to be a healthy person, a healthy follower of Christ, you've got to be right in both directions. But it, this whole thing of connect, it begins with, it, it, with the process of salvation and continues through building spiritually uh, strong relationships. So first, we we got to connect with God, and we got to we we've got to know Him and have a relationship with Him, and then uh, that vertical relationship focuses on that process that that connects people with Him, and then the horizontal relationship creates an atmosphere for relationship building, person to person, and the 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 horizontal relationships that that consists of. Uh, of uh, relationships and connections in every facet of life, you know, family and church, um, the local community, the global community, community, it's our relationships with mankind. And we talk about this connecting, we talk about fellowship, but the problem is today's world, in our culture, specifically in Assemblies of God, when we use the word fellowship, it does not mean the same thing that it means in the Bible. Because when we use the word fellowship, what's the first thing you think of? Food. food. Amen. And, and actually, that does play a part in it. We read here that they did, they, they did break bread together, not only at church, but in, other, in, their, in their homes together. So food, you know, eating together is a very important part of fellowship, but it goes way beyond that. Uh, which really, breaking bread together is really a holy thing. And we see here... Uh, in this passage, but the word that's used for fellowship is a word called, it's a Greek word, koinonia. And it's, uh, it, it's, its basic idea is sharing, but it's also used to, to denote a, a sense of intimacy uh, in, that, in that fellowship. And it's the, the church used this word in the early days for the unique sharing that Christians have with God and with other Christians. There's this uh, the sharing uh, of in this relationship with God and sharing in relationship with each other. We're going to get a little bit more into that uh, tonight. But this this whole concept of biblical biblical community living is is really almost alien to us in our world in our culture because we live in a very individualistic age. We live in a very individualistic society. It's all about you know, me and I can handle it, I can do it myself. And we live in this, in this culture and, and, and the reality is God never, in, he didn't create us to live as individuals, he created us to live together. Does that make sense? And so it makes it really hard for us in our culture to really, really begin to understand this and it makes it, it's very hard for us to, even once we understand it, to begin to live it out. Because, we're going to get into this, because of the fact living that way requires me, if I'm going to build a, a, a spiritual intimacy with my brothers and, brothers and sisters in Christ, it means I'm going to have to open up to you. And we don't like that. Anybody here, like, you know what I'm talking about? Because we're... We, it, we, we, we don't live that way. We, now, we'll open up certain segments of our lives to certain people because it's, it's a necessary part of living in society, but, but that, you know, that comes nowhere close to the biblical ideal of, uh, of, 
of devoting ourselves to the fellowship and having everything in common. You know, if we have emotional problems, for example, what do we do in our culture? We go to a professional therapist who is not part of our regular social contacts, who's not one of our friends, and, in, and he tries to help us in a detached manner. That's the way we, we think. That's the way we live. And in, in this way, we find solutions for our problems without having, to, having other people invade our lives and disturb our, our privacy. And, and yet, the reality is, we as human beings are communal beings. We are people that have been created to live together, to be, do life together. We are, uh, human beings are gregarious. We, we like to, we don't like to, we don't usually thrive very well on our own. We, we need people in our lives. And the reality is we cannot find real fulfillment in life unless our community life is, is meaningful. And life without community creates a deep void in people's lives. And the reality is, now this is not just church, I'm talking about in America, people don't live in, in community. They don't have this kind of relationship. And what that does is it creates a void in the lives of people. And if the church begins to understand this whole idea, then what happens is we can become a, a real powerful tool in the hands of the Lord to fill that void in the lives of people because they're looking for honest and real relationships, and they can't really find them because they don't know how to build them. And so this is a powerful tool in the hands of, of, of God. In fact, what did Jesus say? He said, uh, by this will all men know that you love me. By what? By, by, by love for who? <laughs> right. Did you catch that? He said, People, he's, in other words, he's saying, listen, one of the great evangelistic tools that's going to be available to you is not just your love for the lost people, but your love for each other. Because the people in the world will see that and they'll say, I don't have anything like that in my life. There's something that I long for. There's something missing inside of me. I see that in you and in the way that you love one another. And that becomes a tool where it becomes a testimony because the world says, what is different about them? And they say, it's Jesus. By this will all men know you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. You know, and this, this is actually one reason why uh, small groups are so important for a church to be healthy. And when we talk about small groups, they can be, uh, be all kinds of different forms. It can be Sunday school class. It can be uh, uh, groups that meet in homes. It can be whatever, whatever it takes. But, but uh, small groups are so important for a church to be healthy. And, and the reason is to build that sort of intimacy in the body of Christ. When we come together on Sunday morning... The big service was never designed, nor will it ever be effective for building intimacy. You're not going to grow close relationships coming and sitting in a service on a Sunday morning. It takes more than that. I mean, how many people uh, come on Sunday morning that, that you'd say, yeah, they're friends, but you don't have a real intimate relationship with them, right? Because there's, if there's nothing outside of Sunday morning... You're never going to develop that kind of, that kind of community that the, that the world is longing for, that we were created for. And, the, and, there's, and there's a good reason for that. Now, there's, it's, there's, 
there's a reason for the big service. It's important. Don't misunderstand me. We need that. And we see that in this because it says that they continually went to the temple. So they had the big service, but they also met in houses. So they had the small groups, which was one of the ways that, one of the only ways that the disciples could teach, the apostles could teach all of these new believers. I mean, think about this. I'm getting way ahead of myself here, but on that first day of Pentecost, we know that 3,000 people got saved. Think about, that's a beautiful thing, but I want you to think about what a logistic nightmare that is. 3,000 people, you don't have a New Testament. You, you don't have a Sunday school quarterly. You don't have, you know, lessons on how to disciple people. You don't have any of the things that we have today. And yet now they've got to disciple 3,000 people who know nothing about this Jesus. How are they going to do that? Well, the, it, it was funneled not just through the big service in the temple, but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and they would teach from home to home to home in these small groups where people then can interact and they can ask questions and they can really learn and really grow in that situation. I'm way, way off base, way ahead of myself here. But, but the reality is the big group, the, the big meeting has its purpose, but that's not one of the purposes. And the reason is because we don't like to bear our souls in front of a large group of people. Right? And, that, and part of that is because in a large group of people, you don't know who you can trust. Right? You're standing in front of a big crowd of people and, 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 and you know, you've got something that you've been dealing with and, and you feel like, well, I'm going to just bear my soul. And you say it in front of everybody and, and inevitably someone in that crowd is not going to respect uh, any confidentiality. And before you get home, it's going to be on Facebook. Right? And so that's why it's not designed for building intimacy. It can never build intimacy. And so that's why we need it. That's one of the part of our vision for here is, is to, to eventually get small groups going and to be able to, to use those as tools to develop a, a greater spiritual intimacy where we can spur one another on toward love and, and good deeds. Uh, However, when we begin to develop biblical community in a small group setting, what happens is when you do life together with a small group of people for an extended period of time, you suddenly begin to realize, I can trust these people. And so you open up and you find out that they don't, that they don't judge you, that they actually love you, they pray for you, they support you, they, they help you overcome, they, they help holding you, hold you accountable, all of these things and, and, and it doesn't get out beyond that group. Well, the next time when there's a bigger issue, you feel a little more confident, don't you? And it's, it comes over a period of time as you, as you do life together with those people. And, and as you become more and more confident and, earn, and you gain more and more trust uh, in those people, then what happens is then we're able to open up to them about different areas of our life, maybe areas where we're hurting and we've never told anybody before, or maybe areas where we're struggling and we've never admitted that to anyone before. And, but we know that they love us. We know that they truly care for us, so we know that they're, that they're not going to reject us. 
but they're going to pray with us. They're going to hold us accountable if that's what needs to be done. But, but we can trust that situation. And informal fellowship like this takes away, it, it takes away the pretense and helps people to be themselves. We've talked about this before. There is a very strong tendency in every one of us when we walk through the doors of the church on Sunday morning to put our mask on. Because we want to feel, we want to present ourselves in a certain way. Uh, there, there's this whole concept of image management, and it's kind of, it's actually kind of funny. Uh, um, John Ortberg wrote, wrote about this some, but it's, it's kind of funny because we, we do it all the time, whether it's, it's subconsciously, but we do it all the time. Like I remember uh, years ago when, uh, when The Simpsons first came out, you know, and it had some, some stuff on there that's objectionable. And, uh, and I can remember one time there was a commercial for The Simpsons, and there was one line that Homer Simpson said that I found really hilarious. And I remember saying, repeating that line to somebody, but, but how do I have to preface it? I said, now, I don't watch The Simpsons, but. Now, why do I say I don't watch The Simpsons, but? Well, it's because I'm trying to manage my image to make sure you understand I'm not the kind of person that watches this show, but I saw this commercial. And we, we do that sort of thing. And we do it when we walk into church and we, we put our mask on and, and we, you know, anybody that's had has kids, has, you've seen it yourself do it. I guarantee you. Because there's been that moment where, you know, in the car, you know, you've got your hands wrapped around a person's neck that you love more than anything in life, and you're choking them. You know, you're trying to get them ready in the morning. You know, you get ready, and you get ready now so we can go to church and learn about the love of Jesus, you know. And all the way to church, you know, it's just this tension fills the air. And then you, you get to church, and, and, and you, you step out of your vehicle, and you close the door and you see your buddy across the, the parking lot. Well, good morning, brother. And your kids are going, what just happened? That's our, that's our tendency is to wear the mask. But you know what? You get in a small group, it takes that stuff away, and you begin to realize, I don't have to play the game. I don't have to pretend. I can just be honest about who I am and where I'm, where, what's going on. And, and, that, and by doing that, that means I can share the joys and I also can share the sorrows. And it gives me a group of people whereby I can, I, I can walk through life together and, the, and God can use them in my life to help me grow. And, and you know what, it, and I mentioned this uh, kind of as a side note, but these kind of relationships also help us to stay uh, morally in the place where we need to be. Uh, so it gives us a place where we can make ourselves accountable, which I, I try to choose that language very carefully because um, you can go to a group, there is no person on this earth that can, that can make you accountable. Nobody can hold you accountable. Uh, not on these kind of issues. I mean, like an employer can can hold you accountable to say, well, if you don't finish this job, you're going to be fired. But, but in these kind of issues, you, you, nobody can hold you accountable. And the reason is because they can ask all the right questions. I'll, I'll, give, you a, I'll give you an example. Say there's a, there's a man who confesses to a, another godly man and says, man, I have been struggling with pornography. And the man says, all right, all right, thank you for sharing me, trusting me at this. 
I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna to ask you every time I see you. So they can get together, and every time he sees him, this man can say to him, how have you done this week? Well, he can't make him accountable because that guy, to be accountable, has to tell the truth. See, see, he can't make him tell the truth. He could say, man, I've been doing great when he struggled all week long. See, he makes himself accountable by telling the truth when he's struggling. And so, but this gives us a place where we can form relationships that are deep enough where we can make ourselves accountable when we're, when we're struggling with an area in our life, when we open up to those with whom we're walking in spiritual intimacy, that, that, that we can begin to open be honest. And the great thing about it is secret sin loses its power in the light. The power is in the secrecy, in trying to hide it trying to make sure nobody knows, nobody sees, and, and, and we try to hide it. And when we try to hide it, it gains more and more power in our lives. But when we're open, when we find a situation with a relationship where we can be open, then it begins to lose its power uh, be, because it's not hidden anymore. It comes to the light. And the reality is, it's, I like what John Wesley once said. He said, uh, there is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. We were made to do this together. So that's connect. The next thing is discipleship. And we, we, we use the word grow. Because it's not just about being connected to God, is it? It's about growing in your relationship with Him. In verse 4 to 2 it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so grow is about discipleship. It's about answering this one question. How do we grow to be more like Jesus? That's the question that it answers. Growing is about developing the disciplines, the values, the character, excuse me, and the lifestyle of a follower of Jesus. Now, at, at the beginning, most of the responsibility for the work of the church, this going back to what I was saying earlier, this is where I got ahead of myself, uh, with, with 3,000 people getting saved, think about this, most of the responsibility for the work of the church fell upon the shoulders of the apostles. I mean, in that moment, they were the pastors, the evangelists, the teachers, and the counselors, everything for the whole body. And, and, and just think about how overwhelming that must have been. Uh, the Spirit had, had baptized 3,000 people into the body of Christ, and as I said earlier, there was no structure you know, they, they didn't have any church buildings. There was no New Testament, no discipleship courses, no Sunday school quarterlies, nothing. 3,000 new believers. And, and, and the great thing is, is that these 3,000, remember, there were people from all over the world that was in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And so there are many people from faraway lands, and they stay in Jerusalem. They don't, they don't go home. They stay in Jerusalem because they're, they're now devoting themselves. They say, I, I've got to learn about this Jesus and all of this that you're teaching us. And they don't scatter. They remain together. They devoted themselves continually to the apostles' teaching. And from this, uh, that's one of the things that shows us evidence of their faith and evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Because not only did they, did they take a firm stand for Christ with the apostles, but they had this persistent desire for instruction. They wanted to hear the word. 
And listen, openness to being fed by the word, openness, a hunger for the word is a, is a very important evidence that a person truly is saved. When somebody comes to know the Lord, they get hungry for Jesus. And you've seen this, haven't you? You know, many people come to Christ and they, you know, because they have some, some felt need. They, they feel this need and, and they hear uh, about the God of the Christians that is a prayer answering God. And, and in their eagerness to, to be blessed by this God, they go through the motions of making a decision. Well, how do we know that the seed of eternal life is germinating inside of their hearts? The answer is if there is a seed like that in their life, it will hunger for the nourishment of the word. When God begins to work in, the, in you, your spirit gets hungry for the word of God. And this is what was happening to these people. They said, we can't go home if we go home across the, 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 this globe to, our, to these other nations. We're not going to hear this. We've got to hear this. So we've got to stay. Now that led to some problems, personal problems for them and issues for the church that we're going to get into in a minute. But it's, it's like this. It's like Peter said. He said, like newborn babe, babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. That, and that's what it's like when, we, when somebody gets saved, there's that craving to say, I, I have just had this new experience where I have met Jesus. I've got to know more about him. Let's move on. The, the third uh, purpose of the church and that we see them living out is ministry or, or serving to serve it said they gave up they gave to anyone as he had need verse 44 the bible teaches that when we become children of god he makes us his priest to represent him uh, to everyone around us and and churches of every size i don't care if it's 20,000 people or 20 people, every church that I know of, uh, it, 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 they, they need to move lay people from being spectators in the pews to becoming involved in the ministry of the church. That's a huge important thing. And as we, as we help people learn about their gifts and abilities, and we're, we have plans to do that, we have plans to, to offer some, some, some courses, and it, it, they're not going to define anything, but it will help you explore and help you find uh, how God has gifted you and what your passions are, how he has shaped your life to help you find areas of ministry, then, then, then uh, what happens is then you can find your place to serve. And serving is about finding and fulfilling God's purpose in and through your life by using your gifts and abilities, everything he's given you, because he's, he has already equipped you for the calling he's placed on your life. You know, I, I, that's what I, I read that in Ephesians chapter 2. We know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. We know that passage, right? We know that one, and that's great, it's powerful. But what we, don't, what we don't quote often is verse 10 with it, because verse 10 says, For you are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works which he has appointed beforehand. So in other words, I read that he's saying, Listen, you have been saved by grace... Not by works, but you have been saved for works. 
You've been created, and that when he says uh, uh, that you are God's workmanship, that's a word that can be translated a number of ways. It can even be in, even be translated as poetry. He's saying you are God's poetry. You are God's masterpiece. Is really the the way uh, that you could really bring it. He says you are God's masterpiece, and He created you, uh, and He saved you to do good works, which He has appointed beforehand. In other words, He's the idea is there that he has this plan for you and he's, he's created you and saved you and given you these gifts so that they will match up. You know, if you are a person that, that is scared to death of speaking in front of people and that's how he got, God has created you, it's very unlikely that he's going to call you into ministry where you're speaking to thousands of people. Now, it doesn't mean you never will. You know, uh, or, or if you're a person, we, we've talked about this, I think even last week, I can't remember, everything all runs together. Uh, I have an excellent memory, it's just I can't separate anything, it's just one memory from some time in the past, that's all it is now. But, uh, uh, you know, somebody that is, is, is gifted with children, they're probably, they're probably going to be serving with kids. See, it just makes sense. That how we, are, how we are shaped and how God has put us together, he's going to use us that way. And this is the challenge of the church today uh, in, in getting people into the uh, ministry, into, into this idea of serving, is to help them understand there is something that you can do and that, that, the, that there's not greater ministries and lesser ministries. There's just ministry as under the Lord, empowered by the Spirit. And, and so the person that's, that, that, that takes it upon themselves as a ministry to clean toilets is not less important than the pastor standing up here behind the pulpit. There's just, there is, because listen, I can stand up here, I can stand up here and, and preach the greatest messages in the history of mankind. I'm not saying I do, I'm just saying in theoretically I could do that. But, but think about it. If every toilet in this place was overflowing and stinky, how many people are going to come back and hear those messages? That, you know, some of the most important people, and we, I have a vision to, to uh, get our, our, uh, our uh, hospitality team, if you will, uh, to a whole different level. Some, those are some of the most important ministries in the church because when, when people come to visit a church, you know, they say statistically within the first 10 minutes of being at a church, a person makes up their mind if they're going to return to a church. Now, that means that they've made up their mind before, before most of the worship is done. They've made up their mind before I ever even get, even get up to the pulpit to preach. They've made up their mind whether they're coming back or not. So that means that those first contact people are some of the most important people in the church as far as being able to touch lives as they're walking through the doors. And the, the essence of serving, the essence of ministry is really this. Find a need and meet it. It's that simple. Now, I'll say this. Your primary area of ministry is going to be the area where God has gifted you. Your secondary area of ministry is going to be anywhere there's a need. See, we can't use this, well, that's not my gift, as an excuse not to serve. 
See, we've done that too long, you know. And what we, what the reality is, yes, if you're gifted in an area, that's probably where God's going to use you primarily. But there are also times when, when the Lord will say, show you, say, this is a need right here. And you will say, okay, Lord, since there is a need, I'm not going to just say, well, there's a need. Somebody ought to. I'm going to say, Lord, here am I. Send me. Use me until you raise up the person gifted for this. And then I'll hand it off to them. Anyway. Let's move on. The fourth one is evangelism. And that's the word we use there is go. Go. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Go is evangelism. Reaching out to those who are next door and those that are on the other side of the globe. It's about reaching the lost. Here in this situation, we know that their witness was out in the community. You know how we know that? Because it says they enjoyed the favor of all the people. In other words, they were having an impact on their community. And, and at least initially, now later on it didn't go so well for them, but initially as they were, as they were doing this and, and, and serving the Lord in the community, and they were having such an impact on the community that everybody was looking at them and saying, man, those people are awesome. That's what was taking place. So they were out, their witness was out in the community, and the message of the gospel was confirmed by signs and wonders. Now, I want you to understand this. The signs and wonders were not the point of signs and wonders. The signs and wonders, the point of the signs and wonders was to confirm the word that was being preached and to confirm the witness that the Christians were living out in their lives and in their word. It, and, and, you know, here's what happens. Today we live in a, in a time where we've got uh, a, one group of people that, are, that, are, that have sign mania. And then you've got another group of people that are sign phobic. You know, some people that are, they, they want signs, 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 and other people are afraid of the signs, but somewhere in the middle there's a reality that God still is a wonder-working God. He still performs signs and wonders, but He doesn't do it just so that you can see signs and wonders. There's a reason for it, and, the, and, the, and here, and now I'm not saying that it's always in the context of evangelism, but you can see through the, throughout the book of Acts, very, very often it was to confirm the word of God that was either being preached publicly or to confirm the witness of his people as they, as they lived out the gospel in word and in deed and signs and wonders following. And those people said, this is true what they're saying about this Jesus. And it was the combination a personal witness through word and through life uh, added to the impact of, of, of public preaching and the impact of miraculous signs, and it resulted in a comprehensive evangelistic outreach in the church. And then the fifth purpose of the church, and really this is really tying them all together, is worship. And for worship, you know, we use the word worship. <laughs> See, the reality is all of these things that they were doing were an expression of their worship of God. Because, and you've heard me say this and you'll hear me say it a hundred times more. Worship cannot be simply saying worshipful things to God or singing emotional songs to him. Those are great. You need to do those things. But the reality is worship comes from an old English word. It comes from the old English word worth-ship. Worth-ship. 
So in essence, worship is telling God what he is worth to you. That's what worship is. Now, here's, the, here's what that, the implication of that is this. If your worship is nothing more than, than singing songs and repeating exalted phrases, then what you're saying to him is, that's all you're worth to me. But true worship is what Paul talked about in Romans 12 when he said, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The kind of worship that God desires is for us to lay our bodies on the altar, to lay our lives down before him and say, God, let everything that I say and let everything that I do be an expression of worship for you. Let it all be about you. Not just the songs that I sing, not just the words I say at church, but God, when I go home, when I go to work, let it be worship because I'm doing it for you. When, I, when I'm mowing my lawn, let that be worship because I'm doing it for you. When I'm serving people around me, don't let the attention come to me. Let it be worship because I'm doing it for you. And we're all part, all of these things are part of worshiping, worshiping Him because we know that everything we do is all about him. And we know he wants these other things. The evangelism, the fellowship, all these, things we, all these things we've been talking about. And so in worship we say, Lord, you are worth all of that and more. So Lord, I will give myself to these. So th those were the five, five-fold purpose of the church that they were, they were doing. That's that's the major characteristic I wanted to spend most of our time on. But there were some other characteristics mentioned. Let me try that again. There were some other characteristics mentioned in the passage as we read them. One of, another one of those is they were devoted to prayer. Now, let me ask you this. What is prayer? There you go. In its essence. It's communication with God. Now, the thing about communication with God is that it is a, well, of any communication, communication is always a two-way street. It always is. It's not just about, you know, if I go to, to, to you and I talk to you and I, I never give you a chance to reply, I never give you a chance to talk back to me, all I'm doing is talking, 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 but you're not able to tell me your viewpoint or you're not, be able, to, you're not able to answer anything that I say, then there's not real communication going on there. It's only a one-way street. And, and we've got to not only make our requests made known to God, we, we do need to talk to Him. Absolutely we need to do that. But we also, in prayer, means that we take time to listen. You know what? One of the most important aspects of prayer? Silence. To, to not think that somehow you have to fill up... We as people, we just don't like silence, you know, and, and, and we think we have to fill up, fill it up, fill it up, fill it up. No, just, just be still. 
Sometimes that's a part of prayer is just listen. You know, sometimes in prayer, maybe just, you know, this is why the word is so important in your prayer time because you're praying and, and maybe he directs you to a passage or maybe you're reading someplace and you say, okay, now, Lord, I've, I've talked to you. Now, I'm, I'm listening. I want you to talk to me. And prayer is the means by which we build intimacy with God. So, you know, we go back to that connect. It's connecting with God, connecting with, with people. Well, this is how we build that. This is, this is a vital part of connecting to Him in an intimate way. And another thing about prayer is that it's, it's one of the arenas for spiritual warfare. Now, it's not the only arena. I'll, I'll let you know what I mean by that. Uh, because spiritual warfare takes place on many levels. Uh, let me tell you an example uh, uh, what I'm talking about, because see, when we think of spiritual warfare, we always think of, you know, I'm going to bind the enemy in this specific area, whatever it might be. But, but every time you face a temptation to dishonor God, you are in the middle of spiritual warfare. That's, that's a battle that's taking place in, inside of you. So, so if you're faced with a temptation to sin, you are in the middle of spiritual warfare, whether you know it or not. That battle's going on inside of you. Should I honor God or should I do what I want to do? That's a battle. That's spiritual warfare. And prayer is the mechanism God has given us to, 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 to enter into that. But there's also beyond ourselves, there's this idea of, of, of interceding for other people, for other people. Now, what is intercession? Anybody have any ideas? There you go, praying on behalf of others. Uh, it, it pray, intercession is basically standing in the gap for other people. Ezekiel 22, verse 30 said, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. So, so when we talk about intercessory prayer, what we're talking about there is we see somebody that's going, there's something going on in their life. Maybe the enemy is trying to destroy them and, and they're, they're, they're running from God. I have many people in my, my family and, and many friends who are running from God. When I pray for them, what I'm doing, I am standing in the gap and I'm reaching toward them and reaching toward the Father. And I'm saying, Lord, save them. Or maybe it's for healing. Maybe it's, it can be for all kinds of things. But that's what intercession is. And they gave themselves to prayer. And listen, if we want to be a healthy church, we cannot neglect prayer. It has to be a, 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 a value that we hold. It has to be part of our very culture. The next thing was that they says, they, they were living out these purposes of the church. They were devoted uh, to prayer, but then it says the believers were in unity. Verse 44, all the believers were together. Verse 46, they broke bread together and ate together. And there's unity there. Now, I don't even have time to get into unity. We could, we could teach for weeks just on the whole idea of unity because the Bible teaches us that there is power in unity. I mean, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel, well, you know, they were building it together and, the, and, and God says, if they, are, if, they are, if they are able to finish this, they're one, nothing will be impossible for them. There's power and unity. What did Jesus say? He said, when two or three, what? Gather together. Well, there's another, when two or three agree. There's a, you, you, were, you were right, you were not wrong. <laughs> there, 
There's multiple places where he uses that, but when two or three agree. And then and you see it all through Scripture that there's power in unity together. And that's one of the reasons why the enemy will always attack the unity of a church. He will, and the biggest tool, boy, I wish I had more time. I hadn't even thought about it. I didn't think I was going to get in any of this tonight. But the biggest tool, uh, the biggest trap that the enemy uses, especially in the American church or the Western church, I won't just say America, is the, is the trap of offense. We, you know, we're so easily offended. We, we live, you, I mean, we, we, we talk about the world out there and say it's an outrage culture, but we, we're no better in the church. We're offended at every little thing, and the, and the enemy uses that same tool over and over again to bring disunity to the body of Christ because he knows in the same way that there's power in unity, he knows that our power is drained when we're, when we're divided. Well, these people here, they were, here's how we find unity. This is, they were united by these things. They were united, number one, by a shared encounter with a risen Christ. That's one thing. Listen, we, we will disagree on different things in our lives. That's part of being a human being. But one thing that does not change, you and I have, an, have both or all of us have had an encounter with a risen Christ. We have him in common no matter what. That's the first place. Second thing was they, they, they were united by a shared experience of a changed life. Not only have we met Jesus, he has changed us. We are not who we used to be. That's something we have in common and that unites us. We're, they were united by a shared purpose given, given by Jesus in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. They said, we have one purpose here and we are united. We're going to rally around this purpose and we still have that very same purpose. They were united by a shared love for each other and that's what we have. And let me just say this. Love has very little to do with your emotions. See, it's not about, it's not about, well, I, you know, that when, that when Jeff walks in, I get butterflies in my stomach. That'd be really weird anyway. Right? But love, love is something that I say, okay, I'm going to choose to do this. It's, it's action. It's a decision that we make. It's, uh, it's I, I'm going to try to remember this. I don't have any of this in my notes, but love is the, um, love is the accurate assessment and the adequate supply of another person's need. And that's what Jesus did. The Father said, okay, I'm going to accurately assess their situation. They're lost completely, no hope on their own. So I'm going to give an answer that is adequate, and that is Jesus. And so when we talk about loving somebody, it's like, first of all, it starts by saying, okay, I need to, I need to be able to accurately assess what they really need. Because have you, met, have you ever known somebody that they said, I need this, but what they needed was not what they said they need, but what they needed was something else? So you've got, to be able to, you've got to be able to build a relationship close enough where you can accurately assess what they really need. And then you do everything in your power to adequately supply, adequately supply that need. 
And so they had this love one for another. It's this decision to say, I will serve you. I will, I will love you. I will, I will do everything I can to, to help you to meet your needs. And then the last thing that united them was a shared love for God. And ultimately, that's what unites us together, is that we love Jesus. You know, I've been in other nations where I didn't speak a single word of their language. But I'd walk into a church service, and they'd be worshiping God in some song that I don't know, in a language that I don't know. And my heart was just filled with love, and, the, and there was a powerful moment in that place because they're loving the Jesus that I love. That unites us. And the result of all this, this, listen to this. People were added to the church daily. You know, the the Jerusalem church experienced both qualitative and quantitative growth. What I mean by that is they grew spiritually, but they also grew numerically. You know, you, you hear people today, you know, they say, oh, numbers, that's not what's important. Well, when you read the book of Acts, it seemed pretty important to Luke. So it's not the only thing, but it is a metric that is important for us to understand. Because, listen, you know, if we're going to be a New Testament church, if we're going to be a church like this church in the book of Acts, that means that we're going to see people added to the kingdom. Now, what happened? Other people saw their unity. They saw their devotion to God. They saw their daily worship in the temple. They saw their love for, for one another. And then from Acts 1, 8, we can, be, we can be sure that they continually witness to others in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thus, as a response, using all of these things together, they didn't save anybody, but the Lord added to their, to their church day by day. I mean, these people of Jerusalem saw these regularly meeting, money-sharing, miracle-working, Bible-studying, God-praising group, and they saw something that they were missing in their lives. They saw something that they wanted, and they ended up getting saved. You know what? It is the nature of a healthy organism to grow. And when a church body emphasizes strong worship and solid biblical teaching in an atmosphere of true fellowship mixed with consistent evangelism and, and, and all of this, you know, fed by, uh, empowered by prayer, it will be healthy. And a healthy Christian community will attract people to Jesus. Because people, as I said earlier, people want what the church has. People want healthy relationships. People want true friendships. People want purpose and meaning in their life. People want a place where they are loved and where they can love other people. That's community. And when the church is what it should be, when the church is what it should be, people are added to the church. Now, The implication for that is for us to ask some hard questions. Because if we are not seeing people added to the church, it's not the Holy Spirit's fault. And we must ask ourselves, where do we lack? Because where we lack, we must change. And and when we 
are able to get past our, our traditions, because, you know, that's, that's often one of the toughest things. You know, we don't, we don't live in a tradition-laden denomination, but every Assembly of God church has their traditions. You know, and, 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 and there, there's so many things. I can't tell you the number of times in my ministry that when it was time that we needed to change something, that the response was no, and when you say why, the answer is because we've always done it this way. Tradition is not a reason to continue anything. There are many things that start with a good purpose and were very effective, but when the circumstances change, you have to be able to change your methods without changing the message to be able to meet the different circumstances. It's kind of like I, I heard the story about a long time ago about a, a, a lady who was cooking a ham, uh, and, and she was cooking the ham, and she cut the end off the ham and put it in the, in the oven, and, and her little girl said, Mama, why do you cut the end off the ham? And she said, you know, I don't know. It's just the way my mama did it. Let me call her and ask. And she called her, and her mama said, well, you know, I don't know either. And her mom was still alive, and so she said, Let me, that's just the way my mom always did. So she called her, and she said, Mama, why is it that we always cut the end of the ham off when we, when we cook it? And she just kind of cackled, and she said, well, I don't know why you did do it, but I did it because my pan was too small. It had a purpose in the beginning that became a tradition that didn't serve any purpose later. And see, and that's what happens in the church so many times. We get caught up in, in our comfort of the tradition because they are comfortable. And, and, uh, and we, we want to do it because that's what we're used to. However, if it's not meeting a need, if it's not accomplishing the purpose of the church then as the church, we need to look at it and say, okay, we don't need to pour time and energy and resources into something that is there simply because of tradition. We need to make sure we get past our tradition and we get out and reach the community. We've got to get past our traditions. We've got to get past our prejudices. We've got to get past our fears, which that's a huge one right there. We've got to get past our pain because sometimes we're hurt and we don't want to do something. We've got to get past our sorrows. Biggest one is we've got to get past ourselves. And then we can touch the lives of other people because the reality is it's not about us. The mission is not about us. It's about them. Someone once said the church is the only organization that exists for the people outside of the organization. See, we, we can do every other purpose. We can do everything God wants us to do in heaven except for reach the lost. You ever thought about that? That's the only thing we can't do in heaven. So we better do it now. I want to I want to close by telling the story. I know I'm I know I'm going long. There was a, a young man that I met. His name was Kerry Hepworth in Idaho, and uh, he had gotten in some trouble. He was a well-known drug uh, dealer in in the community there in Twin Falls, and was a pretty very rough individual. He's just not somebody you mess with. And he had gotten arrested. He was in jail, and. Uh, he was dating a girl associated with our church who was also not in a good place. But the girl's mom came to me and she said, can you go visit him? I said, sure. 
Inside I was like, oh, good Lord, please help me. I'm scared to death. And I go to the jail. And I meet with Carrie. And the very first time I met him, um, he was in that place. And, uh, and I led him to the Lord. And, and later I was able to get a Bible into him. And he started reading that. I mean, this is, this is how far Carrie was. He had no knowledge whatsoever. Uh, when, he, when he got the Bible, he started reading it. The next time I went to see him, because I'd start meeting with him every week, he said, he, came, he was so excited. He said, did you know that the Bible has two parts, an Old Testament and a New Testament? It's like, is that right? You know, he had no knowledge. Well, Carrie, um, as I said, he had, a, he had a very bad background. But it came time where he was going to be getting out of jail, at least temporarily. And, uh, and I told him, listen, I want, you to, I want you to come to church. And he was so nervous. He didn't know about going to church. You know, I mean, everybody's, you've heard about, the, you know, the Christians that don't represent Christ. And he, he didn't know what to expect. And, and I remember we knew what day he was going to get out. And I was, I was teaching an adult Bible uh, Sunday school class. And I remember uh, talking to that Sunday school class. And I, I remember just talking. And, and, and I, just, I remember breaking down, crying, and just telling them about Carrie. And, and I told them, listen, he, he's going to be here in two weeks. I just want you to know this, uh, and, and I, want you to, I want you to be the body of Christ and love him. And, uh, and I remember the day came, and Carrie showed up, and he, he, you know, he tried to dress up. He didn't have any good church clothes, but he thought he had to dress up, so he tried as best as he could. And he came in, and he, he walked into that Sunday school class, and I can't tell you. I can't begin to tell you what it did in my heart. As that, that group of people just swallowed him in love. And afterwards, he, was, he just could not believe it. He was blown away. And, and, and God just turned his life upside down. Well, no, God turned his life right side up. And I say this, what I heard, I've heard said many times before. There's nothing like the church when the church is working right. Nothing in this world that can touch a life. Because the church is the, is the medium through which the Holy Spirit has chosen to make the gospel known. There's nothing like the church in this world. And when the church is working right, this world says, they have got what I need. Tell me what's different. That's what, that's what it says in Scripture when it said, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. The assumption behind that verse is, they're going to see something in you that's going to make them ask questions because they're going to be curious how in the world you could be living with the hope that you have in the world that's around. Let's be that kind of, that kind of people. Let's, let's be the church that's working right. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank